1 Thessalonians 5:23 to 28. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So I have a lot of books. No, I haven't read them all. Um, but if you, if you come to our building on campus where my office is, you'll walk in and say, that's, that's a lot of books. Nathan has a lot of books. Um, and a question that comes up pretty often, I feel like it's almost a rite of passage in our ministry. Somebody, everybody at some point asks, have you read all these books? Most of them I have at least skimmed. Um, and if there really is a book that I want to get a general idea about, or kind of see if I want to read the rest of the argument, I typically will go straight to the back. Especially if I'm looking at the table of contents and there's conclusion, it's like, yes, that's where like the real stuff is going to happen. That's where I'm really going to find out what you think about this topic. Because in that conclusion, you will find out what really matters to the author. The point they're getting at. Really the reason that they wrote the book in the first place. So what we're looking at this morning is the benediction. This is the end of 1 Thessalonians and a conclusion of sorts. Now this isn't to say that the rest of the letter doesn't matter, but I do think there is some significance to kind of how a letter closes out. And as with most letters, Paul concludes this one and leaves the readers with some Final thoughts. But I think we should first notice um, this is a conclusion of really the second half of 1 Thessalonians. You might remember a few weeks back, um, there was another benediction of sorts in chapter 3 where Paul said this. He said, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. So Paul gives this kind of benediction back in chapter 3, and then goes on to give what you might call like a a PS in chapters 4 and 5. We kind of thought he was done. Remember, these were letters that were read out loud, so I'd have to imagine when it was being read out loud, they were kind of putting their stuff together, getting ready to go at the end of chapter 3, and then he kept reading. So what we're seeing is the final benediction here, and it places itself squarely in the context of how to live in the light of the coming of Jesus. If you've been here for the past few weeks, you may remember in previous chapters, Paul talks over and over again about the day of the Lord. In fact, if you were here three weeks ago, I preached on the beginning of chapter five, where Paul's encouraging these believers by saying, The Lord is surely coming, and you don't know the day or the hour, but you ought to stay ready and stay diligent. And he highlights this section, telling them to keep encouraging 
one another and building one another up. So when we get to the end of this chapter, he still has this coming of the Lord Jesus, this day of the Lord in mind. But this time, his encouragement is toward sanctification and the spirit and soul and body being kept blameless when Jesus comes. Now, before we dive in, I think it's important that we note that this is, this is really extreme language that Paul is using here. If you've been in church or read your Bible frequently, it might not really jump out at you, but if we take a step back and look at it, his prayer is for complete sanctification. That they would be kept blameless until Jesus returns. Blameless, if you don't know the word, means without blame. That no one could accuse you of anything because you are perfect. There's nothing to accuse you of. When we dive deeper into this idea of sanctification in a minute, we'll see that this is merely the process of growing in holiness. So basically what Paul is asking for these believers is that they would be found perfect when Christ returns. I think one of the kind of rallying cries of our society, both secular and within the church, is the idea that nobody's perfect. We all mess up. We're imperfect. I, I say wrong things to people I love sometimes. We, we, it happens. Nobody's perfect. We latch on to other words of Paul, like in Romans chapter 7, verses 14 and 15. He says this, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Sometimes we read a verse like this and we're like, oh man, thank you, Paul. Like, you get it. I'm not perfect. Paul wasn't perfect. We see Paul struggling with sin and we don't feel so bad about our struggle. Makes sense. Of course Paul struggled. Of course I'm struggling too. And even those in this room who have been believers for decades still find themselves battling the same sin they struggled with when they were a teenager. We resonate with Paul here. And passages like this comfort us in some ways. But passages like we're looking at today can sometimes seem more daunting than they are encouraging. Complete sanctification, blamelessness. We start to ask, is this even possible? Can I even get here? Because I can't even think about partial holiness. I don't know if I can be holy for the rest of the day, much less complete holiness, complete sanctification. So my hope this morning is that this passage would not be a burden to you, would not feel like something you need to get yourself together and live up to, but rather that you would be encouraged by this passage. I think Paul meant this as an encouragement. I don't think he meant to place a burden on his brothers and sisters in Christ right at the end of his letter. He said, hey, by the way, you need to be perfect. See you later. I pray you would be encouraged that God is working in you. That you would be encouraged that day by day he is making you look more like Jesus. But to even get here, we need to first kind of break down this idea of sanctification, which Paul talks about at the beginning of this passage. 
So we're going to split this into three different aspects of sanctification. Number one being the goal. Why does this even exist? What is this moving us toward? Number two being the problem. What is the reason that we need to be sanctified? What's standing in the way of this happening? Why does this cause Paul to say what he said in Romans chapter 7, that he's still struggling with sin? And finally, the last point will be more practical, the process of sanctification. We understand theologically what it is, but how does this play out day by day? So looking at the goal, I'm going to start by bringing us back to Exodus. It's kind of when God first really chooses Moses as one who he will act through to save a people for himself. This is Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. It says, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro and the, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the mist of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. What we see in this passage very early on in Scripture is the magnitude of the holiness of God. The Lord instructed Moses specifically not to come near and to take off his sandals because even the ground he was standing on was holy. And notice, the Lord even waited until Moses was looking away before addressing him. Moses purposely looked away at the beginning knowing he couldn't even look to the face of the Lord because he was so holy. And continuing to recognize the holiness of God, Moses refused to turn his face. Later we see in Isaiah, when the prophet Isaiah met God, the angels were flying around saying over and over again, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. It's clear from passages like this that God is holy, that he is separate from us. That when human beings are in his presence, even Moses, who would be regarded as this great like, forefather of the faith, that when human beings are in his presence, there is an added weight. But what exactly sets God apart from us? Why does this exist? Well, in simplest terms, it's that he created us. Back to the words of Paul in Romans chapter 9, where he talks about the potter creating the pot and how ridiculous it would be for a pot to look at the potter and say, why did you make me a bowl or why did you make me a mug? He's saying this is, this is ridiculous. The created things don't look at the creator and question 
the creator. God has authority over us and is separate from us because he made us. And even more than that, perhaps the greatest distinction comes after the fall of man, when man fell into sin, thus plunging all of humanity into sin. And this brings about the fact that not only are we creations of God, but after the fall, we now see that God is perfect and we are not, though he created us to be perfect. If you're anything like me, every couple of years, there comes a period of about, say, three weeks or so when you really, really care about your cell phone. Um, you walk out of like the Apple store or wherever people buy Androids and you're committed to like, you're, you're never going to scratch that phone. Like nothing's ever going to happen to it. You immediately buy a case, you, you wipe it down constantly, you keep like the plastic on there for too long and it gets all gnarly and dirty. But give it a few weeks You'll be throwing that phone around like you've owned it your entire life. Your kids will have it like in the corner, like smashing, and you're like, whatever, it's fine, it's never going to break. But nothing is quite like the attention you give it on those first few days. It's like bringing your firstborn back from the hospital. Like, no one's allowed to hold it, nothing will ever happen to this. And I would say that if the, if the pristine perfection of a fresh cell phone can bring us to that, to give it such undue attention, how much more should the actual, eternal perfection of the Lord bring us to give him special attention? Let's go back to that full passage in Isaiah chapter 6. It says this, starting verse 1. This is a vision of Isaiah, by the way. It says, In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. We've highlighted for the past few minutes the holiness and perfection of God. And now the question becomes, well, what's, what's the problem? This is great. God is good. God is holy. Even Isaiah is just standing here watching it all happen. What is the problem? Let's continue to read in Isaiah. It's verse 5. And I said, Isaiah said, Woe is me. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The problem here is pretty clearly highlighted by Isaiah. He's seeing all of this occur, and his immediate reaction is like, man, this God is holy, and I am not. I am a man of unclean lips. This cell phone is brand new and I am clumsy. It's not going to last. So God's holiness is not the problem. The problem arises when we realize that we are not. We recognize God's perfect holiness. We see it. We read through scripture. We acknowledge it. 
but we also recognize our own sin. God created us to be holy, to be in perfect fellowship with him. And when we fell into sin, into rebellion against him, we also broke off that perfect fellowship. But Isaiah's response, response that he received, was not hopelessness. Let's read on. Starting verse 6. Then... One of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Now the Lord could have left him to dwell in his uncleanness. He could have said, Yep, I'm holy. You're not. End of story. He could have left it there. But instead, in his mercy, he hears Isaiah's cry. He hears him lament that he is a man of unclean lips. And he takes steps to purify him. To take away his sin so that he can be in the presence of the Lord once more. And I think what we are seeing here in Isaiah is a foreshadowing of the process of salvation and sanctification that the Lord intends for his people. Through the sacrifice of Jesus for our sins, the perfect Savior, God takes away our guilt and he atones for our sin. But he also promises for those who have faith in him that he will continuously sanctify us. This is why some theologians, when talking about sanctification, tend to distinguish between what they would call definitive sanctification and progressive sanctification. You see, there is a sense when we come to Christ that we're we're purified from sin. That's what happened with Isaiah. The coal touched his lips and he was purified. In 1 Corinthians, Paul addresses the Christians at Corinth like this. He says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. He's not saying those who are being sanctified or those who will maybe get there one day. He's saying, no, you've been made holy. Those who were sanctified were already made holy. This was a definite act. As Paul says in Romans 6.11, when you believed in Jesus, you died to sin. And this definitive sanctification reorients our minds. Like the hot coal to the lips of Isaiah, it purifies us, it changes our affections, and it gives us a new desire to do the will of the Lord. But at the same time, Sanctification is not merely this initial action. It also includes what we're seeing Paul writing to the Thessalonian church. Let's go back to our passage for today. He says, Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we're looking at this, We're realizing, yeah, we're called to be holy. 
But if sanctification means that we are to keep ourselves blameless until the coming of Jesus, if we're to make sure that we know all the rules, we follow all of them, we, we get rid of sin in our life, and we, and, we, and we run this race, if the intention here is that this all falls on you, Christian, and this is bad news. This verse becomes burdensome. But as I tried to emphasize as we began, this verse is not intended to be a burden, but rather an encouragement. He says the God of peace himself will sanctify you in order to keep you blameless at the day of Christ Jesus. His aim, his goal is to make you look more and more like him. And notice, this isn't just some like surface level sanctification or even just like a doing good spiritual things type of sanctification. It's complete. It's spirit, it's soul and body. And immediately following in verse 24, Paul gives these believers even more assurance that God will bring this to completion. He says this, he who calls you to it is faithful and he will surely do it. So, believer in Jesus in this room, if you're struggling with sin, if you're feeling hopeless, if you're feeling like, man, I'm 65 years old and the same sin when I was 15, I'm still struggling with it, know that he who calls you is faithful and he will surely do it. This is a promise that we are given in God's word. So I want to take a turn to the practical. It's one thing to believe that God is faithful to help us look more and more like Jesus. But then we get to, well then, how do I go about this? John Frame, in his Systematic Theology, he highlights a kind of threefold approach to growing in faith. And I'm going to use this to kind of help lay out a guide for us here in looking at the practical side, the process of sanctification, you might say. And the three areas he highlights that we should be looking at here are God's law, redemption history, and then finally, the whole body of Christ and the whole body's involvement. So we're going to begin by looking at the law. Now, in some kind of Christian circles, you could say, or maybe in your own mind, the word law comes up and we have a pretty sour reaction to it. Sometimes I think we can kind of lean so hard into grace that the significance of the law fades away. This is exactly the question that Paul was wrestling with in that verse I read earlier in Romans. He talks elsewhere like, so should we just keep sinning so that there should be more grace? Sometimes the word law comes up and it, and it seems like a dirty word to us. But we must not forget God's law, God's rules, God's commands are good. They're not to be cast aside. Like Paul says in Romans 7.12, So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So when scripture calls us to holiness... I think the primary way in which we do this is follow God's commands. This isn't extremely difficult. This isn't like brand new revelation. 
You want to be like God? You want to be holy? You want to be pursuing blamelessness at the day of Christ Jesus? Do as he says. This logic follows pretty well in other contexts too. For example, if you were in high school, maybe some of you are in high school, um, you're trying to make the football team, but you had like no idea what football was, your efforts would be in vain if you didn't take some time to learn the rules of football. It wouldn't matter how fast you could run, how well you could throw. If you never paid attention to the rules, it'd be useless. You'd be running in the wrong direction. Um, You would have no idea how to play the game. Now, of course, to clarify, we are in no way trying to save ourselves or earn God's favor by keeping his commands. Rather, we are merely trying to be more like him by listening to the words of our Father. Let's look at Joshua chapter 1. It says this in verse 7, Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not be frightened, do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Now we could dive into a deep study of the Old Testament law and what's for us today and what's not. We don't, we don't have time to go there this morning, but the main point I'm trying to make here is the command to follow God's law is not one of control, but rather it's one that has our best in mind. So, if the first point, the, the law of the Lord, the commandments of God, is a reminder of what God said, then the second we're going to dive into is a reminder of what God has done. Even the Ten Commandments, which I would say are the most kind of famous portion of law in the Bible, even if you're here and you're not very familiar with Christianity, maybe this is your first time in church, you, you're probably familiar with the Ten Commandments at the very least, And even this passage starts out like this in Exodus 20, verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You see, the motivation for keeping these commands that follow come from a reminder of what God has done. So that leads us into our second point of looking at the history of redemption. What God has done in the past, not just what he says in the present. So what we see in Exodus is a reminder of how God physically rescued his people, Israel, out of Egypt, out of slavery. But what I think might be more motivating, even more relevant for us today is to look at what he has done specifically for you and I in salvation. After explaining how we are saved by grace, Paul, back in Romans chapter 6, goes on to ask a question and answer it himself, as he often does in Romans. He says this in Romans 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? 
Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Our passage today says that God, who calls you to holiness, is faithful to keep you, and this is how he accomplished it. If you believe in Christ, you are dead to sin. Paul is actually saying, and it would be absurd to think that we who are dead to sin should just say, you know what, God shows us grace, let's just continue to live in it, it doesn't really matter. And what we just witnessed, those of you who were in family time prior to this, we witnessed baptism, which is a symbol of this exact concept. There's a representation of burial with Christ, a death to sin, and coming out of the water to newness of life. And God did all of this so that we might walk in newness of life. So, If we continue on in our sin, we are doing the very thing that Christ died to save us from. This is much, much better than a motivation of guilt, which I'm sure many of you in this room have been motivated by before, where you've just felt like, man, I'm awful, I keep doing this. This is not how godly guilt works. Godly guilt for sin points us to the cross and doesn't say, you dirty sinner, how could you do this? Godly guilt says, man, Christ died to save you from this. You don't have to do this. You've been freed from this. Walk away from it. It's not good for you. Reminding ourselves of the gospel story can help encourage us in holiness. And finally, we must not forget the simple command found in Galatians 5.16. Paul says, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Of course, it is the Spirit who produces fruit. We know that. We know it's the Spirit at work within us that, that gives us these fruits of the Spirit, which are also found in Galatians. But at the same time, Paul commands us, walk in it. We must realize that everything we need to live holy lives has already been graciously given to us by the Lord. And not only this, but look around you. He's given us one another. You see, Paul isn't writing this letter to individual Christians. He's writing it to the church. We'll see it in a second when we wrap up these final verses, but he says in verse 27, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. He wants to make sure the entire church hears this letter. So in that, he is striving for the entire body to be sanctified completely. He's not for the sanctification of individuals within the church one by one, he's striving for that the whole body would be sanctified completely and kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. In our Tuesday night large groups on campus, um, I'm, I'm going through the book of Philippians and Paul has a similar greeting. 
He says this in Philippians 1. He says, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve of what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. So church, I want to encourage you where there is no corporate striving together for holiness, there is no love for one another. And the inverse of that, where there is no love or where there is no love for one another, there is no corporate striving for holiness. These go hand in hand. So if you're here and you're a member of this body, one of the ways that you love each other is by encouraging your brothers and your sisters in Christ in their sanctification. This is a hard one. It's one thing to encourage people in things that are awesome and fun. Oh, you had a new baby or you passed that exam. Like those are, those, are, those are awesome things and great things to encourage one another in. But do we encourage our brothers and sisters in their growth and holiness? Sometimes that can be encouraging excellent things that we see happen, ways that they're growing, but other times that can be maybe addressing behaviors where they're not growing in holiness. So we have a church covenant here at Ogletown. Um, If you're a member of our body, this is something that you went through in a membership class or you talked through with one of the shepherds who met with you at a certain point. Um, And what this kind of document does is lays out how we intend to treat one another as a body of believers here at Ogletown. And I want to read through a portion of this covenant about exactly this, how we strive together toward growing in holiness. It's going to be up on the screen. Um, I'll go ahead and read it for us. But this is a portion of our church covenant. It says this, Together we will spur one another on to love and good deeds. We will meet with one another consistently. We'll pray for one another regularly and serve one another selflessly. We will endeavor to bring up those under our care and the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We will share each other's joys. We'll bear each other's burdens. We will edify one another with our speech and encourage one another with our example. Using restraint in activities to avoid harming another's faith. We will humbly and gently confront one another and receive correction from one another. And my question for you this morning is, are you doing this? Are you pushing your brothers and sisters in Christ to holiness? And are you open when they push you? And a first step for many of you in this room might be, man, do do you even have relationships in your life that can bear the weight of a hard conversation like this? Are you pursuing those that have made this covenant together with you? Now Paul closes his letter with these final words. Starting in verse 25, he says, Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with the holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. 
the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So he asks for their prayers, as Paul often does in his letters. Remember, he's he's a missionary, he's traveling around, he's wanting these churches to pray for him and what he's doing. He's then telling them to greet one another as close family often did in the first century. He ensures that this letter is read to the whole church. And then, finally, he leaves them with the grace of Jesus. After calling them to holiness, to sanctification, he ensures that the last thing that they remember is the grace of Jesus. Like I said at the beginning, I think it's important to, what what is the last thing? What does Paul want to leave us with? And it's grace. My prayer is that as we close out this study in 1 Thessalonians, that you would stay remembering the awesome grace of Jesus. As you aim to grow in your faith, I pray that you would keep in mind these three things once more. One, that you would keep in mind that God's law is good. That he put it in place for our good and for his glory. Number two, that you would see the great work of God in saving a people for himself and ultimately sending his son, Jesus, to save us. And finally, that you would remember the participation of the entire body of Christ and striving to look more and more like Jesus until he comes again. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, I'm grateful that you didn't just save us and leave us to figure it out on our own. But God, you sanctified us. You made us clean and pure before you when we believed in Christ. And that day by day, you continue to sanctify us. God, we're grateful that you are for our holiness. You are for us looking more and more like you. So Lord, I pray for this body here at Ogletown that we would be a people that pursue being blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, that we would give one another grace, that we would show one another the great grace of of Jesus, but that we would also challenge one another, that we would push one another. God, as we read in our church covenant, that we would humbly and gently confront one another and receive correction from one another. God, I'm so grateful that we're in this together, that we're pursuing you together. And Lord, I pray that we would never forget the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ who promises to be with us through it. We pray this all in your son's name. Amen.